It's the first Monday of the month, and we're responding to questions from our listening community. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 393. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. Once a month, the first Monday of every month, we open up the show to questions from the listening community and do our best to uh, get you thinking about what would be a next step you may take or a new consideration on some of these topics. I am joined, as I am most months, here by Bonnie Stahoviak. Welcome back, Bonnie. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me back. Always glad to have you back. And we have a whole bunch of questions to respond to. As always, if you have a question you would like us to consider for a future Q&A episode, go over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback and send it in for consideration. And our first question comes in this month from Evelyn. Yeah, Evelyn wrote in about a recent episode. She asks, in relation to your recent episode on moving from being a caretaker to being a rainmaker, I'm curious if a rainmaker first has to be a good caretaker. Oh, I love this question, Evelyn. Thank you so much for sending it in. If I could go back and we could add more to that conversation about caretaker versus rainmaker, I think May and I would both make the point that it's a spectrum. It's not an either or, this is an and. I also think about this in the context of what's the distinction between management and leadership. You've probably heard me say before that management, uh, I see it at least, is how we handle complexity in our organizations. Leadership is how we handle change. And um, they're not an exact correlation, but I think we could look at caretaker versus rainmaker through that same lens of how are we handling the status quo and handling the complexity in our organizations, and how are we also then challenging ourselves and others to change for the better. For most of us, we are doing both of those things on a regular basis. Uh, my hope in coming out of the conversation about caretaker versus rainmaker is that for those of us who have been in the place of being in the role of caretaker and have not thought much intentionally about where are the places that maybe we should start engaging as a leader, as a rainmaker, that you would um, consider that and possibly move into that space a bit. So to answer your question directly, Evelyn, I think the answer is probably, if not yes. You need to have either been the caretaker in your organization or have spent a lot of time listening and respecting the caretakers within the organization in order to know what change is going to be appropriate for the organization. I think one of the best examples of this that I heard from one of our past guests was from Chris Hatfield. Chris is one of the former commanders of the International Space Station, a Canadian astronaut. And when he was on the show a few years ago, he talked about how as NASA astronauts, one of the things that all astronauts are asked to do are to really to take every role within the space agency over the course of their careers. The time they spend in space is actually quite small percentage-wise, um, and to really understand the whole functioning of the agency. And they're quite often, as a result, rotating into different roles and responsibilities within NASA. 
And he has a concept of being a zero, of rather than showing up and trying to add value right away or to affect change or to give feedback, is to show up and not try to do anything at the beginning or the first time you step into a role or to a new organization or to a new team. And I think that that is a really good reminder for all of us, Evelyn, on this of if you are going to make the intentional shift to thinking a bit more like a rainmaker and how can you affect change in the organization and how can you start to test things that make things better and solve a problem, first and foremost, you owe it to yourself and to everyone around you to make sure you understand what's going on and what is going well and why are the systems there that are there. I've made the mistake before of stepping in, seeing a system that I didn't agree with, and changing it. And finding out later that there was actually a really good reason why that system was there that I didn't see or appreciate at the time because I didn't take the time to really examine that. And when I think about this even from a macro perspective, we have this error in judgment going on a bit in the world today. If you look at some of the things happening in global politics like Brexit and the political situation going on in the US, you see this tendency culturally right now of things aren't working and we're going to tear stuff down, we're going to break it, um, we're going to change a whole lot of things. But you also don't hear as much of the taking the time to really examine why those systems have emerged, broken and insufficient as many of them are, why did they emerge in the way that they did And what can you do as a leader then to make them better or maybe sunset them or do whatever, but to be very mindful of why systems and people and culture have emerged? So Evelyn, all that to say, we need to be both caretakers and rainmakers. And when we show up as either, we need to be mindful of the other one, especially if we're going to be a rainmaker, taking the time to understand where the caretakers are coming from and why those systems and cultures have emerged, I think is key for all of us. So I hope this is helpful to you. Let me know what you think as you are, as you're, as you're processing thinking about those two in your own organization. Our next question comes in from Samantha. Samantha wrote in and asked, if someone gets a job offer somewhere else, should you let them go? Or if you think they are valuable to your team and organization, should you always fight to keep them? Even if you can see it could be a good career step for them to leave. Bonnie, what do you think? In the business world, there are leading indicators and there are lagging indicators. And having someone get a job offer somewhere else falls into the category of a lagging indicator for me. So I would say, yes, the person is gone and we wish them well and we do a great job at hiring someone to replace them. I have not historically had experiences where people who report to me have done this little dance. And and it is common with some types of personalities, with some values that certain industries or organizations hold where it's almost the game, right? And so you I have had people who have shared that in some institutions of higher education, the deal is that at some of these really prestigious places, when you're up for tenure, it is just a given that you're going to go and also be applying for jobs at other places. And in fact, if you don't have a job offer from another also perhaps equally or even more prestigious institution, then they won't 
even give you tenure. <laughs> so it's, I mean, that's how the game is played in these places and you learn those things and you're able to do that. By the way, I am not meaning to imply that it is unethical what these people have done and the, and the way that it's done. I just don't like to do it that way. And I haven't been in a position where that's just culturally speaking, how things are done. So for me, I really like to have really open conversations. And in fact, I do try to build up trust such that if someone was feeling like their life was taking a big shift, they might be able to share those things with me. But so it's not something that I have a lot of experience with as a leader, because a lot more of the conversations that I have are more transparent than that. And I would have a lot more of a heads up then by the time we get to that lagging indicator, I'm not saying perfection, but but closer to where I would want to be on these things. So I find it more helpful to be thinking about these things in terms of wanting to get there way before that happens. And there are really two fronts to think about. One is that people do really like to be challenged. I was just listening to another podcast about teaching the other day, and in the scholarship of teaching and learning a lot of the research has emerged that we learn better when there are what is referred to by researchers as desired difficulties. And, that's the, and, and in fact, Harvard back in like the 40s or 50s or something did this research picture this big, I was going to say a pie chart, but I must just be thinking about pies because this is not a pie chart, a uh, bell curve. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> and so that we're not very motivated if it's not very hard, Right. And we're also not very motivated if it's super, super ridiculously hard. We don't think we'll ever get there hard. But right there in the middle, that sweet spot where we're challenged, we're learning. And so the research that's been done around motivation and Daniel Pink in his book called Drive really articulates this well, this idea of really being challenged, how motivating that can be for us in our work. And But the other thing to also recognize, I have never been one who's super interested in career progression as that relates to titles. I care very little about titles in terms of, let me just get the next bigger one so it can go on the business card. And I have worked with individuals who that really was important to them. That kind of progression meant something to them. And I did need to recognize that working with someone like that in this particular instance, a guy I'm thinking about, you know, he was young in his career and he wanted to keep moving on up, moving on up, moving on up. And I knew he would not be in my department very long. And I maximized the heck out of it when he was there. He was very talented and he did move on to other higher level positions in the company and, you know, saw that kind of career progression. And I, I still I saw a message somewhere on social media. He's still continuing to climb and how wonderful that is to have gotten a season where you get to work with someone like that. So that's that's my thinking on this. Dave, I know you have some thoughts as well. Yeah, two other resources, Samantha, in addition to what Bonnie mentioned. One episode we aired a while back, episode 251, What to Do When Someone Quits. Molly Mosley was my guest from LinkUp on that episode, and she cited some of the research that they look at in their industry on more than 50% of employees who accept counteroffers from their present organizations when they come in to quit end up leaving within 24 months anyway. So I think that's a really interesting statistic to consider. It's not to say to never make that counteroffer, but for a lot more on that, I think that episode really kind of dives into the depth of how do you have that conversation. The other thing that's coming up for me on the Samantha is one of our Academy members, Chris Nichols, authored a beautiful article a few months ago 
on how to handle it when someone quits. And he made the point, which I think is just brilliant, that uh, when someone quits, that's the second time when you hear about it. They already quit in their minds at some point prior to that. And usually it wasn't the same day. It was a, a week ago, a month ago, maybe it was a year ago. And to Bonnie's point, if creating the environment and having the kinds of interactions and the proactiveness where the time frame between those is a lot shorter and that you're part of that conversation when someone moves on, that that's part of the expectation and part of the collaboration you've engaged with with that person, I think is a wonderful thing to aspire to. So I'm going to post a link to that article from Chris and put it in the show notes as well. Because I think it's a really helpful thing to consider as you're thinking about this situation, Samantha. I hope we've been helpful to you. Let's tackle the next question here, Bonnie, from Tammy. Tammy writes, my position is in a management duo slash triad. I manage the night staff in an emergency department, and I am co-leader with a day manager with both of us reporting to the director of the unit. I'm looking for tools on working in this management structure. We run into difficulties with role and responsibility delegation, stepping on toes, as we have completely different management styles. There must be a way to work better as a management team. Any help or resources will be greatly appreciated. Well, Tammy, this may be causing you some frustration in your daily work. That said, I'm glad to hear that you have very different styles because that is a gift to your organization that you both bring your own unique personality and style to your role as managers. And by the way, I think that's pretty common in most organizations. So that in and of itself is not necessarily an obstacle. Part of this is looking at this of how can that be a strength. So what I'd like to make the distinction on here is style difference versus core expectations. So there are some core expectations that probably should be the same in the organization, right? What does good performance look like? What are expectations? How we do, and specifically in your kind of work, very specific around procedures and quality control. You want people to be themselves, of course, and manage with different styles, but you also want to be able to achieve the same outcomes. So one of the things I'd really be curious about for you and for your peer managers is what conversations and what framework do you have around what outcomes look like? What are the overall expectations and outcomes for the measurables that you and your organization are looking at. I'm sure there are many, given your industry, that are important as far as patient satisfaction scores, quality control, all kinds of metrics that you're monitoring on a pretty regular basis. Those are worth framing as the big picture and then having a discussion and maybe even some expectations and as a team of how are we, where are we going and then allowing each of the people in the team to be able to, within the scope of their style, to be able to do that in a way that complements. Now, the other thing, though, that is coming up for me is awareness. When I've been in situations like this with peer managers or in organizations where multiple people have been managing staff and teams, one of the biggest blind spots that I has often come up for me is there's just not an awareness of what and why other leaders are making decisions that are different than someone else's. And because there's not often that awareness, when the differences emerge in conversation or in conflict, it's very easy 
to have the stepping on toes happen and the, well, um, that's not the right way to do it kind of things come out. And so I really like the concept that was mentioned on the show a while back of the concept of doing an on-site. You know, we hear about doing off-sites as we've done episodes on them before, but I, I really love the concept of doing an on-site taking a bit of time, and this doesn't even need to be an all day, it could be an hour, it could be a half hour, but to spend some time with a peer and to shadow them and to find out how they are doing certain things and how they're responding to situations and how they are stepping into or not certain procedures or certain conflicts, just to become aware of how different leaders are handling different situations. Not to find the right or the wrong, but to have that awareness. And if you as a team and your peers are willing to do that for each other, even a bit, then I think you open up the opportunity for a more understanding, more awareness, and then you can begin to have a conversation about where are we going as far as our outcomes. Our next question comes in from David. David wrote in and said, I've become recently a manager of a help desk at a college. Our full-time staff is fairly small. I manage a team of around 20 students that work for us. The team is made up of everything from music majors to computer science majors, and it's wonderful to have a mix of backgrounds and experiences. My predecessor had a different style than I do. Speaking of styles, one of the biggest problems historically has been time and attendance, showing up late, uh, calling off five minutes before the shift begins, et cetera, et cetera. Do you and Bonnie have any suggestions for setting policies and procedures like time and attendance for student workers? Nearly no resources are available from human resources, and I've been given the freedom to set the expectations as I see fit. Do you have any suggestions for generally leading student workers in a higher education environment? I've given a listen to episode 289 about managing part-time staff. I'm just curious, given your backgrounds, if there's any suggestions specific to these environments. Bonnie? One resource I would have, and Dave, you'll need to look up the episode number, but is the tools available from Chip Espinoza, who was a guest once or twice, I believe, on Dave's podcast talking about managing the millennials. He wrote one to leaders talking about how to manage this generation, and then one to those individuals themselves as they get into the career, giving them some context of how to really maximize their strengths in their workplaces. The thing that I really like about Chip, and and from the way you wrote your question, I suspect you might too, is there's none of this derogatory stuff. So much of it, (laughs) people will say today, you know, these young whippersnappers today, they just don't get back in my day. And that, that is just fundamentally oftentimes not accurate. I'm thinking of an example where people talk about how much today our technology distracts us and when we read on tech and the whole world is coming to an end. And then I'll see a picture or a meme or something of the train back in the 40s with everybody reading newspapers and thinking the world was coming to an end because no one was paying attention to each other because everyone's reading, you know, the printing press. Oh, no, you know, what's going to happen? And so I think there's a lot of alarmist things and really judgmental things around people who are younger than us, you know, generational difference that is not helpful. And I have great hope for the future as I work with people that are now half my age. And and I think, wow, we're in good shape because there are some incredible people that are coming up that are going to have tremendous impact in our organizations. And that's the paradigm 
I want to have, and I will tell you it is easy to have. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't different cultural norms. And I went from, in my teaching, for example, to be pretty punitive in terms of put that phone away, and I would ascribe intent to what people would do. So you pick up your phone and you're looking at it and that that somehow is about me and you intentionally being disrespectful to me and what I have, the brilliance that I have to offer this class. And that was not a helpful paradigm. But what is a helpful paradigm for me is that technology can get in the way of presence. When Dave and I sit down for dinner with the family, the kids and I, we don't have our phones there. That's not something that we do. However, on occasion, there's something big going on in Dave's life or something big in my life, or quite candidly, on a rare occasion, something big going on with the kids where is it going to break the unity of our family if once every three months we let them leave the television and they're watching a movie and sit at the dining room, uh, not the kitchen table, they can still see the television and eat dinner. Every once in a while, there's nothing wrong with that. But we do have a family norm that says dinners don't involve devices. We're going to be present for one another. We're going to listen to one another. And again, if Dave and I go out for a date night, same thing. We're not looking at our phones, but there is the occasion where Maybe it makes sense to pull out a phone and look something up and we each will say to the other one, oh, excuse me for just one second. I actually want to look up and see if there is a movie time we could go and and check out right now. Or I want to look up that email because I want to make sure I get what she said right when I tell you. So we can create those same norms in our workplaces. And there are often differences as we bring new people into the organizations, particularly student workers, because they sometimes don't have other professional workplaces to compare them to. So it might be that it's not like they're bad people or they're not meaning to be rude or disrespectful, but we have to teach them a new norm. And to me, it's far more powerful rather than make that a rules-based thing make it a values-based thing, and make them see that if they adopt those norms, if we all commit to them, the powerful things that can emerge. So really thinking through the values. And and one of the things that comes out in Chip Espinosa's work is just how much you can tap into the potential of today's younger generations when you can help them find that meaning and significance in their lives, as if this doesn't apply to me in my late 40s and people in their 50s and 60s and 70s and so on. I mean, that that motivates us all, but it really has a special potential because they're not jaded yet, right? They're, they're ready to tap in, but we've got to be able to connect with that. So less rules-based. That being said, once the, the, the whys behind why it's so important to be on time and how that contributes to the bigger picture, then a, certainly we need to have that accountability and not be afraid to have those confrontations. And oftentimes those kinds of healthy confrontations haven't been modeled for them previously. And so we just need to show them what that looks like. This is the expectation this is not being met, and this is going to be what happens if that continues, because we can't have that continuing. David, the manager I had in my life who had the absolute highest expectations for any team I've ever worked on in my entire career was the manager I had when I was a student worker in college. And so I would invite you to dive in on something significant that Bonnie said, is you are 
almost always, if not uh, most of the time, managing people who have not really spent a lot of time in the workforce yet. You have this wonderful gift to start helping them to build a foundation in their careers of very high expectations. And um, I love what Kim Scott says in her work on Radical Candor of challenge directly and care personally. So I would invite you, David, to don't shy away from setting your expectations high for the staff and the student workers. And along with that, take the time to care personally, to put your listening and your care and your love for them into the work every day. One of the things that Bonnie is so brilliant at with her students is that she balances those so well, both having high expectations, but also the tremendous personal care that she gives and taking students out for walks and taking them to dinner and listening to the struggles that they have in their lives and crying with them, as you've done in just the last few days, is something that you have this just wonderful opportunity to do that, frankly, in a lot of professional organizations, we just, once we get into the full-time workforce, it is harder because of time and space and the monetary expectations and all that that you have a little less of in an academic environment. To the extent you can lean into that, David, and to embrace that, I would invite you to, you will give them a gift that will last them their whole lives. If today's questions got you thinking, a number of related episodes that will support some of what we've mentioned here today. One of them is episode number 149, An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth. My guest was Chris Hatfield on that episode. I mentioned his Be a Zero concept earlier in the conversation. He shared a lot of strategy and thinking on career and career progression during that episode. A great listen. He's a fabulous speaker and just a wonderful communicator and, of course, extremely gifted in his work as well. That's episode 149. Also helpful to you will be episode 158, How to Lead the Millennials. Bonnie mentioned Chip Espinoza. He's been on the podcast a couple of times before. He is really an expert and has written several books on working with leading, even millennials, how they manage. And if you're looking for more perspective on that, episode 158 is a helpful place for you to start. Also, I'd recommend episode 236, How Super Bosses Master the Flow of Talent. I was thinking about Samantha's question in relation to should we let people go uh, when they decide they're on for a new opportunity or should we try to keep them in our organization? And I love what my guest Sidney Finkelstein said on that episode on how the super bosses, as he calls them out there in industry, how are they navigating and handling those tough conversations? And yes, trying to keep people in their organizations, but also seeing the bigger picture and seeing how the movers and shakers in industry move around organizations throughout careers and how, interestingly, many organizations do better when a boss has had a wonderful relationship with someone and they move on somewhere else because that relationship stays strong and ends up serving both parties well in the long run. Some fascinating look into the research on that on episode 236. Also helpful, episode 251, as I mentioned earlier, what to do when somebody quits. Lots of thoughts from Molly Mosley 
and myself on that episode if you find yourself in that situation and how to handle that. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 289, which was mentioned earlier, how to lead part-time staff. Chris DeFerio was my guest on that episode. He is the host of the very popular Keys to the Shop podcast. If you happen to be in the restaurant business or in coffee in particular, uh, Chris's show is a wonderful resource for you. On that episode, he talked about how to manage part-time staff. We looked at it from his experience in leading coffee shops and also consulting to coffee professionals over the years. But lots of lessons there that are extremely applicable to so many of us who do lead part-time staff or lead contractors. There's, there's different dynamics there, of course, and episode 289 will help you to explore those. You can check out all of those past episodes, either by going those episodes directly or even better, go into the podcast library by going to coachingforleaders.com, establishing your free membership if you haven't already. That's going to give you access to the entire library. It's also going to allow you to search by topic Plus, get the weekly leadership guides that come on Wednesdays, access to the member cast, free access to the 10-day audio course, 10 ways to empower the people you lead, and believe it or not, there's a whole bunch more there too. All of it's free. You can get access to it just by going over to coachingforleaders.com. Set up your free membership and all of the library of the show from the last, uh, well, since 2011 now will be yours to search. Have a wonderful week. I look forward to talking with you again next Monday. Take care.